0: This production
1: on the OSIRIS Podcast Network. Since the first paintings on cave walls, humans have sought to document their lives on this bright blue ball spinning free. Ancient people bonded over shared experiences and memorialized them for ongoing celebration and reflection. You know, like deadheads. It's a cliché that the past can tell us something of our future. Maybe it's a cliché because it's so often true. But it doesn't have to be cave paintings. We can also learn from more recent history, like the original counterculture movement. As emissaries of that era, the Grateful Dead are a kind of codex for understanding 20th century America, with its social and political tensions, and its open-ended sense of possibility. These days, possibility seems like the one thing missing by comparison. I think the dead might have something to teach us here, too. In previous episodes, we talked about the audio vault as key to understanding and appreciating the band, but that's not all there is to the archive. A whole bunch of media from show posters, to press clippings, to stage sets, to beautifully hand-drawn letter envelopes give us a fuller picture of the Grateful Dead and the scene. Put it all together and you've got the corpus for what has come to be known as Dead Studies. A mother load of artifacts is housed within the Grateful Dead archives at the University of California at Santa Cruz, which opened in 2009 and has since become a mecca for dead scholars. My favorite Grateful Dead writer isn't an academic, but he definitely gets to the heart of things. Blair Jackson is joining us a little later in the program. His book, Garcia, An American Life from 1999, is required reading. He collaborated with another well-known dead associate, David Gans, on a book called This Is All a Dream We Dreamed, An Oral History of the Grateful Dead. And I'm sure some of you will know Blair as the head behind The Golden Road, a magazine he and his wife Regan launched in 1984 and which was published for a decade. I really am a huge fan of Blair's work, and I'll tell you why. I have a book coming out in June called William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll. As I'm sure many of you know, Burroughs was a beat generation author with a fairly messy personal history. He was also a huge influence on four decades of musicians, and he befriended quite a few of them. Garcia even shows up in my book. Anyway, this thing is already available for pre-order on Amazon, and in a few months you'll be able to find it across the country in whatever bookstores still exist. I only bring it up to illustrate a point. Blair is really fucking good at this. He captures the essence of his subjects brilliantly and also gets the historical details right. He's got a musicologist's ear and a sense of humor to boot. And to get back to Dead Studies, Blair's stuff is as important as any institutional scholarship, if not more so. Except it's not dry. And let's be completely honest here. Blair was doing what we do on Dead to Me way before I got on the bus. So... It's a real honor to speak with him, and I know you'll love his stories. But first, let's check in with Eduardo, who always has smart stuff to say about this kind of thing. Eduardo, let's do this. So, why do you think the Grateful Dead are so ripe for scholarly inquiry? Like, why not Led Zeppelin studies or, I guess, Greta Van Fleet studies? (laughs) Sorry.
2: That's a question that will bedevil our generation and I think future ones too
1: yeah but something's driving this
2: i suspect that for a lot of people the grateful dead are kind of a moment that goes beyond uh a normal sort of sense of the self and it's and you know when you engage with the music you really sort of there's that sort of the feeling of the the third eye or the the cosmic self being opened
1: yeah it's transcendental
2: and no disrespect to led zeppelin i think what they do for you know the average 13 year old boy who you know is learning about rock for the first time is a little bit different
1: yeah for sure
2: Um, And so I think we're like endlessly fascinated by the tools that open up the bigger universe to us. Right. And so we end up studying them.
1: Sure. If we're allowed. I mean, psychedelic research went away for a while. Seems like it's on the way back, though. But look, I was a huge Zeppelin fan. I probably had transcendental experiences when I was 13, <laughs> right. but I never co-hosted a Led Zeppelin podcast. So I think you're onto something here.
2: Certainly, the body of work is, is very much, um, it's extensive, and so it, it lends itself to analysis. Sure. You know, the dead come along right at the beginning of postmodernism, and... Mm-hmm. In many respects, there was this um, transition to sort of, you know, James Joyce and T.S. Eliot and that kind of like formal modernist movement that gets launched. And it says, hey, the Odyssey now takes place inside your head and it takes place in one day. It's not a 40 year journey.
1: Far out. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me, I came across a scholarly article a little while ago called Terrapin Station, Postmodernism and the Infinite. And, it's like, and the Infinite. Don't forget the Infinite or the Brownies for peer review. <laughs>
2: Man, there's that famous trope about how many articles in the humanities are never ever cited by another article
1: (laughs) It's like a tree falls in the forest with no one around or a YouTube video with no likes
2: (laughs) You know, I also think about um, someone like um, Howard Becker, who was this sort of noted sociologist and uh, was actually an advisor to my mom many years ago. Cool. And um, he was sort of famous for um, taking an interest in deviance and outsiders and and sort of recontextualized the idea of people who didn't fit into mainstream society. And yeah. And and the thing that launched his lifelong interest in that was sitting on the L as a as a young boy in Chicago and kind of peeking into windows and just wondering about all the. Lives and all the worlds he was passing by on that train and wow and so whatever causes that spark it can really lead to kind of a you know a lifelong pursuit of, of knowledge and information and
1: right wake up to find out that you are the eyes of the world.
2: Yeah, it might be the fact of being physically present at a concert and realizing how many different realities are converging on this one event so that, you know, you can be exposed to three and a half hours of music.
1: (laughs) Yeah, among other things. Well, it definitely inspires something and it definitely seems to inspire a certain type of person. Mm -hmm. There are conferences on the dead and academic journals about the dead and you've got the whole UC Santa Cruz archive. But I do wonder, is this trend sustainable? Like, at some point, do we run out of stuff to analyze?
2: What you hope is that um, there can be an evolution of the type of scholarship. And, you know, we've we've talked about how at some point, you know, there won't be anyone left alive who ever saw the dead live. And yeah,
1: so at that point, it's just cultural forensics.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we have institutions that are dedicated to preserving those things. Right.
1: Yeah. For now.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, let the record show this is being recorded in early 2019.
1: And that's the other thing that occurs to me. Anti-intellectualism is on the rise in America, particularly on the right. There's a mistrust of institutions, including those of higher learning. So I wonder if that will impact the cultivation of new deadheads. You know, so many young people or formerly young people found the dead through campus life. And apparently young people are still finding the band because we did that NPR 1A episode Mm -hmm. and it was about new generations finding the dead. And they can't all be discovering the Grateful Dead through John Mayer, right? There's a
2: fascinating uh, corollary to that, which is um, I was talking to my brother who uh, lived in the Bay Area. He just moved to San Diego. But he was talking about coming across younger kids in the jam sort of scene. Right. And there are people walking around, for example, who like pigeons playing ping pong but don't know fish.
1: (laughs) That is unreal. Yeah,
2: it makes zero sense. So part of me wonders like, If at some point the proverbial chain will not remain unbroken and people will sort of experience something like the dead without any firsthand awareness that they're living in the dead's world.
1: Yeah, it's like the Greta Van Fleet phenomenon. And I will never mention that band on this podcast again. (laughs) So let's do what we do and fire up the DeLorean, go back to the future. What's the state of of dead studies 100 years from now i mean we've talked about this from the perspective of deadheads, but this is like a very special cloister
2: well for starters i think one of the things that i've that has always endeared me to academia is that there is going to be one crusty old person on every campus who is going <laughs> to serve as the dead's ambassador totally that's just a fact of life that energy sort of gets transferred from one body to the next but it never goes away <laughs> It's
1: like that movie real genius with val kilmer. It's got that one old former student. Yeah. who lives in the closet. There's your dead
2: head Yep Um, i'm surprised that you and I are talking about the dead on this podcast in 2019
1: <laughs> you and me both Yeah, well, we've sustained it for at least eight episodes <laughs> Yeah,
2: <laughs> right um, so thinking a hundred years out I think The dad's Intimidating Archive will sort of be whittled down to a few key definitives. Right,
1: so like a core text will emerge, is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, and you might not have people who argue about Cornell versus Buffalo 77 anymore. Maybe the
1: world will be better for it, but a hundred years, I mean... I can barely fathom a hundred (laughs) episodes. Some of the most robust writing and analysis on the dead is actually outside of academia. We've got Blair Jackson popping by in a little while, and he's like the Moses of dead studies. Even though he's not repping any particular program or institution, he was just really into the band and happens to be a very talented journalist. I'm actually a little bit nervous to talk with him because everything we do here. Owes a huge debt to his work. Uh, it got me thinking: like, what separates Garden Variety Dead Obsession from that next level thing that Blair has? You know, people who really examine all sides of this thing.
2: I was just talking to our friend uh, Philip from the Broke Royals the other night at Kevin's going away thing. Yeah, hey, Philip. And um, and I was making the point that um, to me, it's it's a little bit like. You know, insert sport here. So let's just pick, let's just say baseball, right? Every baseball game has the same elements. Right. uh, But no two games are alike. You can go to a baseball game and experience it through the sort of filters of social media and, you know, what you post about something uh, is a substitute for experiencing the thing. And you can have a good time. You can. Um, You can go to a game and you can be very aware of where your team is in the standings and the importance of that particular matchup in the context of the season.
1: Yeah, the stats nerds.
2: Yeah. And it seems to me that, you know, the great thing about the world of the dead is that the more you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. And so, you can engage casually and and, and have a rewarding experience. And if you have the time and mental fortitude to do it, and you really, you know, decide to go in, Um, it's, it's actually sort of a democratic thing, right? Anyone, anyone who wants to do this and has the time and energy to spend on it, it's not like you don't have to understand complicated, like regression models, like you have to do with (laughs) sabermetrics or something.
1: Right. No, clearly that's true because, um, you know, it's kind of the thesis of our show. Yeah. I was not a deadhead. One day I got on the bus and as advertised, the community was extremely welcoming. That's right. And I think you're right. There's, um quite a few strata that you can explore. Although I do find that casual dead fandom is probably more rare.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And if you are a casual dead person now, chances are you won't be for much longer. It's just, it's sort of like just a matter of time. Like, as you age or as the circumstances around you and the world change, the likelihood that you'll graduate to the next level is is, is pretty high.
1: Right, it's like Scientology
2: (laughs) (laughs) You need to go clear.
1: But I I look back at the episodes that we've done so far and it starts to actually look like a syllabus and makes me think maybe you and I should start dead you,
2: right? Yeah,
1: let's do it. I mean, it can't be any more of a fiasco than Trump University.
2: <laughs> uh, our letterhead won't be gold foiled, I assume.
1: Well, you're looking at the brochure in your mind, and it's like kind vibes, free tuition, zero employability. <laughs> <laughs> the cafeteria only sells grilled cheese,
2: <laughs> and and everyone gets a golden retriever when they show up,
1: and they're all named Jerry, <laughs> or maybe Marley. You're are you in?
2: I am. I am for sure in.
1: Good, because now you're the dean. <laughs> Yep, there's another little thing I had on my hard drive. We'll make this stuff available at some point, probably towards the end of the season. But right now, I think it's probably a good time to...
0: What if there was no Dead Archive? We all should be grateful That this isn't the case thanks to the efforts of eileen law one of the band's earliest non-crew employees hired in 1972 law worked with the band for the next 34 years the band members she was as close as family in fact the birth of her daughter cassidy inspired the bob weir song of the same name in addition to managing the front office law was the point of contact within the organization for fans longtime publicist dennis mcnally calls her the angel and guardian of deadheads She was also the band's first archivist. Eileen saved everything and was extremely methodical, McNally says. Like the Dead's music, the archive is built on an exchange between the band and its audience. It never stopped, Law says. I still get mail from young kids who have listened to their parents' or grandparents' music, and all of a sudden, they want to know more. Pretty soon, I found myself being the keeper of everything. Press clips, posters, all their vinyls. I kept getting more and more stuff. Law kept it all together in file folders organized by category. Everything I could collect I did, she says. Over time, the collection became an important resource for visiting authors and historians. At one point, the band had the idea to house everything in a dead museum called Terrapin Station. When Garcia died in 1995, plans were set aside as members grieved and squabbled. Those dreams died down, says Law, and pretty soon I was just left with all this wonderful stuff. In the following decade the late ethnomusicologist frederick lieberman who collaborated with mickey hart on his book planet drum secured a permanent home for the archive at the university of california santa cruz suffice to say none of this would have been possible without eileen law i had faith that something good would happen to it she says when you shut one door another one opens and this one's in santa cruz
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another 1972. So sue me. This is from May 3rd of that year. Wharf Rat at the Olympia Theater in Paris. What do you say we talk to Blair Jackson now? I can't wait any longer for this, folks. So we're talking about the dead as this broad area for reflection and how folks... Outside of the band contribute to our understanding of the band and the scene There's obviously already been a whole lot of documentation whether it's taping or analysis I'm starting to think that the reason that folks go deep with this comes from wanting to understand or replicate that Transcendental moment when they got it like maybe that's what we're chasing Mm -hmm. which makes me wonder like How did you get on the bus?
3: The first time I actually heard them was at a dance in my hometown in Pelham, New York. They weren't playing, but they, between sets, this was like in 1968, I'm guessing. Wow. They had a light show at the dance. And during the set break, they were showing on the light show, they showed the Robert Nelson short film about the Grateful Dead. Right yeah uh, which I had I had no idea really who they were I'd never seen this thing but I thought it was extremely interesting and strange and then I didn't really think about that film until many many years later when I heard about it again but I knew it was it had been the Grateful Dead and so I was intrigued Right my brother had bought Oxymoxoa Yeah and I thought it was okay I don't know I like you know I like St. Stephen I like China Cat it was something right. maybe what's become of the baby scared me off a little bit or something <laughs> some of some of the production on it was not really my favorite I I, I love the song Mountains of the Moon
1: but did like the production on it right they were just experimenting at that point it was weird yeah
3: yeah so you know i liked it okay um but then when live dead came out i really 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 liked that it
1: comes together
3: <laughs> and uh that you know i just got it immediately sort of saint stephen really that saint stephen side it took me a, maybe a couple of weeks to get into dark star I was like whoa what's this
1: <laughs> yeah well at least it's a better representation of what the band was in performance at that time
3: yeah so then, so then the, the so then it became a, a, a thing of well, how how can I see this band? And uh, uh-huh. initially, uh, my brother, my older brother, who was three years older than me, got tickets to um, one of the Fillmore East shows. Nice. In fact, the ones that are just coming out, that are about to come out on. Uh, the Dave's Pick series, yeah. the January one. But for various complicated reasons, we didn't get to go. <laughs> so Aww. some other friends went in my stead. Um, so then the next time their name popped up in the New York Times entertainment section was for their first Capitol Theater shows in
1: 1970.
3: Okay. So a friend of mine and I uh, went bought tickets for The Late Show, thinking it had to be The Late Show, of course. Of um, course. Because maybe they'll jam all night, man. <laughs> um, and uh, so we, we took the train up from Pelham to... Worcester and my mind was completely blown. Uh, you know, it was a third full to a half full. I mean, there was almost nobody there. It was, wow. it was, it was literally the fewest people I've ever saw for a Grateful Dead show ever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't phase the band in the slightest. <laughs> well,
3: you know, I, they, the word hadn't gotten out about the Capitol at that point. This right.
1: So a little bit of a slow burn, but the band did take off pretty quickly on the East Coast once things clicked.
3: Oh, yeah, they were doing really well, like at, already at the Fillmore East and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, um, so we went and you know, we didn't even have a way to get home at two in the morning and, oh. you know, thought we'd walk home, you know, which is stupid. <laughs> and then classic immediately took a cab. <laughs> smart kids <laughs> paid the twenty five or whatever bucks it was <laughs> to get back to home. But um, I was definitely hooked big time immediately. And then, you know, I just started going to see them whenever I can back at the Capitol a couple more times in Fillmore East. February 70 was my first Fillmore East show for another band. I went and saw uh, Quicksilver and Country Joe there. Excellent. Yeah.
1: So, if you weren't exactly present at birth, you were definitely there for the toddler years. Terrible twos. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. I think people have a tendency to like the era that they came to the band best. Right. You know, because it's sort of the thing that, it's like an imprint. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, a developmental imprint.
3: So, and 70, 70 really was a great year, I guess. Yeah, objectively. In retrospect and at the time. So, it was so fun. And they were, you know, 70 and 71 is when they sort of started playing interesting places and different places right. in 71 we get the manhattan center in new york city and uh i went and saw them at the yale bowl in the playing in the one corner of the end zone in 1971 <laughs> and wow there's you know little places here and there that were that were kind of fun but also reflected their growing popularity because places were getting bigger too at the same time
1: that's right and
3: then and then by 73 or 72 i guess was the first time they played i think roosevelt stadium which is like mondo big sure um but that was that was a kind of a fun place find run down and cool and strange and
1: that's really cool i mean by that point even in a compact amount of time you're already able to chart the band's development musically yeah you know, coming out of that heavy psychedelic blues based experimental phase and then pivoting to more of a song oriented structure, but still with really far out jams.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, my first show at that one at the Capitol Theater, they, you know, Weir and Garcia sat down in the middle of after like four or five songs and did a little acoustic set. And I guess the other guys maybe were there, too, but I I sort of don't remember that. (laughs) So that and that was doing the material that some of the material that would be on Working Man's Dead just in a, a couple of months down the line amazing so so i sort of came in at the time when they were becoming more song oriented and that definitely helped i mean you know those those are great songs uh, to this day absolutely so um i don't know it was, it was just fun you know i didn't really have a sense of dead heads per se being any different than anybody else at other concerts i was going to but it did become clear very quickly that every show i was going to was completely different i didn't know the the, the repertoire well enough to know that they like weren't doing the same show every night. Like I, when I, <laughs> yeah. when I had gone to see the birds, for instance, uh, they were, they were, uh, kind of popular at that time. Mm-hmm. They were having sort of a comeback in 1970 with, um, Clarence white. Yeah. He's
1: a monster. I uh, yeah. too bad he didn't, uh, didn't get to stick around. No. Anyway, a
3: great band, but you know, I went and saw them twice in three months and they played the, the exact same show, you know, uh, front to back and same, same with 10 years after. i Saw them a couple of times at the film. Uh, these are other bands I like. Uh, and yet the Grateful Dead were different every time I saw them. And pretty shortly after I saw my first show, I went out and bought whatever else they had done. So that's when I picked up the first album and Anthem of the Sun, yeah. which I guess was all there was. And plus uh, the uh, MGM discs, you know, they, they did those uh, Historic Dead and Vintage Dead. I love Vintage Dead. I thought Vintage Dead was a great album.
1: Yeah, I've seen those around. Interesting.
3: And in fact, uh, Vintage Dead was the first Grateful Dead writing I ever did. I did a review of it for the underground paper I was co-editor of called The Paper in Pelham, New York.
1: Oh, cool. So that probably set you on your course. But I was going to ask, when did you get the idea for The Golden Road?
3: That came a lot later. I mean, that wasn't until the 80s. So, So I'd been going for a long time.
1: Yeah, like writing reviews and stuff. Definitely getting your feet wet.
3: Um, just a couple of things for the underground rag and just at BAM magazine, I guess I wrote a couple of things.
1: Right. So that's Bay Area music.
3: That's right. Yeah. 76 is when I started writing for BAM, which was the the year they started. Cool. I think the first Grateful Dead thing I ever wrote for them was essentially a review of their comeback shows in San Francisco. Yeah. Right. And that, that review is actually reprinted in the Dave's Picks Uh, of those shows from the Orpheum Theater in 76. Awesome. Yeah, so those were great shows.
1: And then, of course, you fast forward to the 80s, and you did a lot of documenting of that era with The Golden Road, and it's so impressive to me because when I look at that stuff, it's the first time I've encountered analysis about the Grateful Dead hitting all these different angles Mm -hmm. you know I'd come across these reviews in like Rolling Stone or or mainstream magazines and you know sometimes it was dismissive or lacking in critical depth
3: (laughs) to say the least
1: (laughs) to say the least but when I read your stuff you know I can tell you're a fan but there's real clarity in your insights, and you also provide terrific context. You know, The Dead didn't have a lot of champions in the mainstream music press, and it always seemed like there was something missing. Did you seek to fill a void with The Golden Road?
3: Yeah, um, you know, the pretty much the only thing that was out there when we started the Golden Road in, in the beginning of 84, I mean, we started working on it in late 83, right. was Relics. Ah. And Relics was, was really in a kind of a weird space at the time where they had gone off being primarily a grateful dead slash San Francisco magazine. And yeah. they literally had Ozzy Osbourne on the cover, St- a story wow. by my good buddy, David Gans, no less. Uh, <laughs>
1: Holy yeah. shit. David Gans wrote an Aussie story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: He went, he went, I think he went on the road with him and stuff like that. He wrote an Ozzy piece and, uh, that's amazing. You know, Blondie was on the cover. I mean, I love Blondie.
1: Yeah. I did too. not
3: love Ozzy Osbourne, but, um, <laughs> From a Deadhead perspective, I would say they had lost their way a little bit.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
3: But even so, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too critical of them because, I mean, they filled an important niche and need for a long time. Sure. I don't know. I just came at it from a slightly different tact just because, I guess, of who I am or something. Um, I've always been kind of very historically oriented. I've, I'm always interested in history.
1: That definitely comes across. When right? I
3: wrote my book, my first book, The Music Never Stopped, which was pretty much just a linear history of the Grateful Dead. Um, I basically over researched it, <laughs> as as often happens.
1: Oh, I'm familiar with that.
3: <laughs> and then, I, right, exactly. And then I got so much encouraging feedback about it from deadheads, kind of out of coming out of the woodwork. Hey, I loved your book, and this kind of stuff. And I've I sort of. A lot of the comments were kind of along the lines of mm, "You, you sort of seem to be speaking my language." Essentially, you know. Um, oh yeah, definitely. After that, my wife Regan and I just decided well, let's just try a magazine. And we got some of the the people who had written in. We sent them a bunch of leaflets, you know, big stacks of leaflets. Hey, you guys are going to the shows, uh, you know, early eighty four <laughs> or late eighty yeah. three. We, we passed these out for us, and if we get enough response, then we'll start a magazine. We got enough response, so we started a magazine.
1: Well, that's the other thing. It was so much more difficult to produce media back then especially as an independent publisher like everything from you you know the contacts to the scheduling (laughs) to the layout to the to the printing it took forever and a lot of effort it's pretty funky (laughs) (laughs) yeah right do you ever marvel at how you got all those issues out Not really it was i
3: mean we were we were we had both been journalists for a long time and we both worked at magazines so even if we were not physically laying out the magazines we worked for, like when I worked for BAM or Mix later. Um, You know, I saw the art department sitting there cutting galleys and putting wax on them. That's right. And uh, we had access to a... um, a machine to do halftones, photos, and stuff like that, and knew people who would do that for us. So, we would go down and I would have a stack of the photos I wanted to use, and I'd give, this, give them to this guy, Richard McCaffrey, who had been working for BAM, and he was a great photographer. And he would go, go in at late at night, and he would shoot the halftones, and then bring, I'd bring them back. We'd wax them and cut them into the, the size and shape, and wow. uh, we'd learn how to use proportion wheels and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was fun. It was challenging. We were never great at it, obviously. Uh, but um, by the by, the final two issues, when we finally hired an art director, our, our friend Michael Zipkin, and he did it on you know a Mac or whatever. It, that was like the first time it actually looked like a right. what I would call a really professional magazine.
1: Fancy, yeah. So you went through editorial boot camp. Yeah, you know my era was sort of the zine culture of the nineteen nineties, and then. I got a job as the Alt News Weekly music guy, yeah. And when I was coming on, we were kind of making the transition from what you're describing with the sort of physical layout to the world of Mac-based publishing, yeah. But in terms of covering just one band, did you ever think to yourself, "Ah, oh, I've gotten way too obsessed here"?
3: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I felt like there's always more to be learned. I mean, yeah. sort of, sort of how I went about it, as it were was, you know, well, what what would what would I like to write about and what interests me? Yeah. You know, so like that's why, you know, I was always intrigued. But who is Bill Walker, the guy who did the cover for Anthem of the Sun? Right. And yeah. through, I think, through Tom Constantin, actually, who I had befriended somewhat. I think that's how I originally got my contact with him. So I called him up out of the blue in Hawaii and... He was more than happy to talk. And I got really a great story. And, you know, same with when I did what is essentially the first real big interview with Donna in 1985.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I loved that. Amazing. The
3: greatest story never told. I like that.
1: So incredible. I mean, it really painted a picture of her in a way that uh, revealed her as this really well-rounded, interesting human being. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing how you got her to open up to you about. Yeah past you know when she was coming up as the high school cheerleader in (laughs) Alabama and singing background in the Muscle Shoals scene with like Percy Sledge and Elvis Presley and you really handled her religious awakening with a lot of dignity and respect
3: yeah which had just kind of manifested itself in the previous years right before that you know very very early on I think maybe because there was a slight amount of antipathy Uh, towards relics in the Grateful Dead organization themselves. Uh So, right off the bat, people in the Dead organization pretty much liked the Golden Road. That's great. And were very helpful and would talk to me and they enjoyed it yeah. <laughs> which was good i mean i remember when uh, regan and i went up to garcia's house in 85 to do what we thought was going to be the terry garcia interview but he ended up having laryngitis and it was kind of a uh. so it didn't happen so we just kind of hung out for a little while but you know one of the first things he's you know he said was you know we appreciate it you know that he really liked the golden road and the
1: Oh, that's so cool! I
3: had the thrill of watching him kind of devour it once or twice. uh, When I I would always bring a little stack to Front Street, and he was either there or he wasn't there. But a couple of times he was there, and I'd I'd look at him, and you know, the first thing he'd always do was read the letters to the editor. Nice, and then then he would look for whatever humor piece we had. (laughs) Nice.
1: Well, I imagine he was raised on Mad Magazine, so it makes sense. You know, I get the impression that before the message boards and the well, you know, maybe the Golden Road was part of his window into the. And culture
3: probably maybe maybe a little bit yeah 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 I mean uh, yeah we got good feedback from all the all the band members
1: it's really clear that trust was established because you managed to achieve real candid responses from your subjects and some of the members of the dead have a reputation for being pretty guarded with media yeah I'm thinking in particular like you got Robert Hunter to give insights into his, yeah. uh, his methods yeah. and also pretty close to the lip of uh, him revealing you know, how he perceived his own lyrics, which is frankly astounding. Mm-hmm. Did you take any particular approach to gaining that trust or getting these folks comfortable with answering some of these questions?
3: Just know what you're talking about. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, it certainly helps. You know, with somebody like Hunter, and I mean, this is just something I learned from being a rock journalist forever is, you know, no matter what you want to talk about, the first thing they want to talk about is whatever they're promoting. No doubt. Uh, You know, I mean, even Jerry and people like that, there was always a reason theoretically why, why they were doing an interview, whether they were on the road and they were promoting an album or whether they're in the Bay Area promoting an album or promoting some special show or they were doing and all that.
1: Right, or Mickey's doing something with drums. He's always doing
3: a hundred things. indeed. And he was actually the first guy to give us an interview, so I've always appreciated that. He's a great guy. And he's also a quote machine, so he's he's kind of a...
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, they all are. Phil is pithy as hell.
3: It was a a tougher nut to crack, I would say. I could see that. Took the longest to get an interview with him.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, the band in general has a reputation for being pretty loose with their business and their organization in some ways did that ever pose a challenge in securing coverage
3: we were fortunate in that my initial champion there was eileen law well there you go who loved the magazine and i already knew her she was she was sweet and all that stuff you know i mean all the things people say about eileen are true
1: so she's kind of the seed of all this yeah i mean she was hoarding stuff right out of the gate yeah yeah
3: (laughs) Yeah. She, I mean, she would let me look at stuff and, and she helped me whenever she could. And also Dennis McNally, you know, who was the official publicist for right. forever, it seems. Uh, he was supportive in the sense that, you know, his, his first inclination is always this. No, nah, I don't think so. Ah, Kreisman doesn't want to. Know. You know, it's, it's like, like kind of grumbling. And <laughs> yeah. then he said, well, I asked him and he said, yes. you know.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's a good gatekeeper.
3: So at least he asked them, and uh, and it did usually work out. You know, I mean, that's why kind of later on, after we were pretty well established, why I could go to McNally and say, hey, I want to do a big thing on, on Pigpen. Can you get me, Jerry, just to talk about Pigpen? And he'd, he'd go to Jerry, and Jerry would say, yeah, yeah, hey, I've never done an interview just about Pigpen. Let's do it.
1: Amazing. You know, I can't thank you enough for that. Like from our vantage point now there's still so much curiosity about Pigpen yeah. and the early dead and the whole scene. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to overlook that this is a real human being we're talking about here. So it's really beautiful that you got Garcia to talk about his friendship Mm -hmm. with this guy.
3: Well, I have to admit, too, I, I knew very little about Pigpen, even though I did get to see him several times in 1970 and, I guess, 71. An enigma. Yeah. To give a little credit where not much credit is often given, the Hank Harrison book called The Dead Book. Yeah. That was really the first window we had into the early years of the Grateful Dead and of the pre-Grateful Dead. Sure. Even though, you know, a lot of people have commented about his reliability Mm -hmm. and also the fact that he appears to have removed a lot of photos from people's personal collections and never returned them. Yikes for those great photos in the book. But you know, I I, I got a lot from that book. I wouldn't say that it was a template or anything I used, but when I did The Music Never Stopped, which I guess came out in 83, that had definitely helped me somewhat and also gave me something to aspire to go past.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
3: His was really kind of a personal history of somebody who was kind of there with those people even though he wasn't part of a lot of the things, he knew almost all the players from the Palo Alto days and all that kind of stuff. So that that's why that book is super valuable. Yeah, and
1: like you said, it was the first. And
3: that kind of depth of him knowing that stuff is part of what encouraged me to kind of go to the obscure. Right. Well, that's great too. It's like when I wrote the uh, Garcia biography, An American Life. It became such an interesting search. You know, I said, like, "Well, you know, somebody mentioned this girlfriend that Jerry had for six months. You know, I wonder if I can <laughs> find her." And you know, and I did. You, you know, did. Kind
1: of Just. Amazing first-hand accounts and Jerry's brother tiff. I mean yeah.
3: Oh god tiff was one of the first interviews I did for that book. that was an incredibly moving experience I
1: can imagine
3: when I was writing the book, you know, which was basically 96 to 98 I think it was it was an incredibly Interesting time to be doing that because Jerry's death was still very fresh and people were very emotional about it and I'll that kind of spilling <laughs> Uh, and I'm, it's not like I was sitting there trying to get them to spill, but they wanted to talk about him And if you set it up right and let them talk uh, and, and know en- enough in the background to know which questions to ask
1: and what also strikes me about that book is you Managed to capture Jerry's humanity and and that hard to pin down charisma Obviously, it's a tragic story. Yeah, when you're writing a book like this How do you find the balance between telling the story accurately and respectfully But not shying away from those all too human frailties that ended up costing him his life.
3: That's really the balancing act. I mean, that's sort of what we've tried to do all along. I mean, I've always tried to be honest about what happened. I tried to be very non judgmental, I would say. I would say that I was very conscious of that.
1: Well, that's a very Jerry
3: approach. Well, especially when it comes to drug abuse, it's very easy to be scoldy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> to say, you know, oh, how could this guy let this happen to himself and how could people enable him and this and that? And it's, it's always so much more complicated than that.
1: It's tough. I wrote this book about William S. Burroughs and, and all these musicians. And yes, it's like, exactly. There this guy's go. a heroin addict and he shot his wife. I mean, it's dark. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For real. But I really do appreciate how you handled all that. And in addition, you know, for people who never got to see the band, giving us a sense of the guy that it all revolved around. It certainly seems, from my vantage point at least, that folks like yourself and David Gans kind of laid the cornerstone for a lot of this. I don't know how often you reflect on any of that, but it's got to bring you some sense of satisfaction. Yeah, I mean,
3: uh, I feel like Gans and I and Steve Silberman, we've we've all filled little niches here and there of uh, adding knowledge and wisdom and tone and personality as you know you know there's so many ways that the crystal is refracted
1: no doubt about it
3: if you're a writer you're you're only going to capture a little glimpse of it in a given article or a given interview. My thing was was always, and this this is this was true for all of my rock and roll interviews, of which I've done thousands, literally. Yeah. I always wanted to get something, sort of tell me something I don't know. Right. Especially with musicians and stuff, they, they have a tendency when they get on a tour that they get asked the same questions in every city. Yep. Uh, so they say sort of the same things, and I'll definitely think I got some really great thing, and then I'll see it in four other magazines. Oh, they got that story, too. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, the canned response.
3: Having now been interviewed a number of times through the years, I can see why people (laughs) give canned answers. Oh, I've interviewed. I've asked this question. (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: it's efficient. Like, There's a lot of folks who can ask good questions and get interesting answers and describe a setting or a scene and give us a sense of character. Super important, but you're also really good at giving us a sense of the art, Right, you know, what's behind all of this. And with The Grateful Dead, that is crucial.
3: That was definitely always my mission, was always to keep the music in the forefront, because otherwise, why bother? Right. You know, I was trying to follow the contours of the music as it went along and sort of sure. explain how it goes from period to period and how songs changed and uh, how they were influenced maybe by the lives being led by the people. Definitely but not have just the lives be what's interesting and important in the book.
1: Yeah, your understanding of the music and how that music evolves and the forces that shape it, really, really impressive.
3: You know, one of the advantages I had being on the West Coast and being essentially accepted uh, in the Grateful Dead world by the organization and stuff was that I had unlimited access to their archives, which Eileen was already keeping in giant uh, loose-leaf binders. uh, Right. Paul Grushkin, the late great, is actually the person who assembled the binders for Eileen because he was doing wow. the Book of the Deadheads uh, back in 82, I think it was, because he was like doing an authorized thing. He took all of Eileen's clippings and put them in binders. Excellent. And then I had access to that like before I did my book. Uh, my Garcia book anyway. And through the years, uh, she would occasionally let me take stuff home and I would photocopy it. I've like lots of photocopies (laughs) of what's in there. So, you know, I had a very good sense of what was out there in the literature and really made a point of tracking down anything that I'd heard of that maybe wasn't in their binders. So by the time I was like writing the Garcia book, I pretty much knew almost everything that had been written about them that was of any significance. So I could, draw from that, but also pointed me in in directions where I had questions. Well, if this happened, why did this happen?
1: Follow the thread. And the next thing you know, you're actually contributing to this thing that eventually becomes the corpus of like legitimate academic study, which makes me wonder what Garcia would have thought of the Grateful Dead becoming part of this whole academic trip.
3: Oh, I I think he was aware of it. I mean, it, it it was already happening a little bit when he was still alive. I think he was... I think he was bemused. Is that the right term? Or maybe amused is a better is a better term. <laughs> you know, humorously exasperated. You know, why would anybody want to do an analysis of the lengths of every plane in the band and talk <laughs> about how it changed from seventy one to seventy you know, nine? Well, I do. <laughs> well, as as he said, uh, I think it was. I think he said to me, "Was uh, you know, it's it's hard enough keeping up with my own thing to, to, to worry about the Grateful Dead scholarship world or whatever it was."
1: <laughs> well, it's a good thing there's always somebody else to worry about that. I was wondering what your reaction was when Jerry Garcia died, because you'd already invested so much of your own creativity and passion into the scene. It must've been a real blow.
3: It was a bad day. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. I was driving to, uh, work at mix magazine and, you know, it was one of those things that I like, why are they playing three songs in a row by, by Jerry Garcia? And I said, Oh, you know, if you haven't heard Ryan by now, you know, Jerry Garcia has died. It was, it was oh. to say it was shocking. Uh, it was, uh, putting it mildly so i drove to work dutifully and uh where i was immediately sort of taken as it was like i was the widow everybody sort of walked by my office you know i'm so sorry you know know, it was completely well-intentioned and uh yeah uh and then i think it was it was again since silberman and i were on npr or something like that and you know did a lot of Phone interviews with radio and all that kind of stuff.
1: So you barely had time to process. You were instant response.
3: Oh, absolutely! I had no choice. I've said this before, but you know, I didn't. It didn't really hit me. I would say. I mean, it definitely hit me. I immediately knew. Oh, god, this is this is. It's over. Sort of.
1: Oh, it's so sad.
3: But the, in terms of an emotional impact, it, it when it really hit me was when we went to the big thing in uh, Golden Gate Park uh where right. they you know played music and all the band members and stuff spoke it was a beautiful incredible day we had our five-year-old son with us and two-year-old daughter oh,
1: that's so sweet
3: and uh i don't know the vibes were kind of good and you know everybody was kind of smiling through this moment and enjoying being together. And I remember leaving the field Mm -hmm. and uh, kind of looking back down and seeing all the color. And and I think that that was the first time I really kind of started crying about it. And it 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 was tough.
1: I can imagine. Had you already thought of writing the Jerry Garcia biography by that point? Or did that come to you a little later?
3: You know, I'd always wanted to write something beyond The Music Never Stopped but i think i didn't it never occurred to me that i would write a biography of somebody when they were alive <laughs> i don't know right. i i would say no no I, I, it did not occur to me and it was it was not that long after he died that, it, that that i was approached by viking books about doing one and i immediately said yes and that began a pretty incredible two year period of interviewing people it was just so fun and the the writing was you know, everything you can imagine. It was cathartic. It was difficult. It was, you know, it was two days working on the same paragraph, and then the, the next point <laughs> oh, <yeah>. completely <laughs> flows out. You, you know the deal. Um, but I decided to write it in order. I mean, it's not like I wasn't always researching stuff, but I definitely sat sure. down. I wrote from the beginning to the end, and I, I remember having a good cry after Jerry died uh, in, in the book. It was like,
1: yeah, in the book, it's that powerful. It really is. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was a
3: really interesting experience. It, it got an amazing, if I may say so, reaction from most people. And it's still, it's still the thing I'm most proud of. I would say that I, that I've ever done.
1: Well, look, the writing is really good. No, thank you. You know, and that's not always the case.
3: Yeah. I, I read them all. I love music biographies.
1: <laughs> yeah, so do I, which is why I'm always happy to find a good one. So why do you think it is that people remain so interested and invested in this thing called the Grateful Dead?
3: You know, we're now tw- almost 25 years down that line from Jerry's death. Is that or is that where we are? I can't remember. Just about, Yep. Anyway, um, you know, it's really the songs. The songs is, is really the anchor of, of, I think, everything that happened. You know, if they didn't have the compelling songs, people would not have gone back Time after time after time. Yeah, because if they had been kind of in the space that they were in for like Anthem of the Sun, where you know this incredibly interesting and creative and strange psychedelic music was coming out, that's that's not something that would sustain for you know 50 years now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, it'd be more of a curiosity.
3: But they have this credible body of songs uh, filled with wisdom and lines that. Change for you every day, every month, every year you hear them and in different situations. And obviously, they're incredibly different and unique musicians. You've still never heard anybody else who plays like Jerry exactly or plays like Phil or plays like Weir.
1: Yeah, uh, we've said it on this show many times. They are their own idiom.
3: They are their own idiom. And it's just, and it's such an appealing idiom. So, and then when you add the incredible body of work, the huge voluminous body of work, and <laughs> the changes over time, and yeah. then you add the social element of deadheads knowing each other and being this friendly, outgoing lot, and you know everybody has a friend who's a deadhead or their uncle's a deadhead. I can't tell you the number of times somebody has said, "Oh, you know, I'm not a deadhead, but my cousin is, and he li- <laughs> right. likes your book or whatever." You know, it's just yeah, everybody knows deadheads, and I think it was Garcia, you know, told me in an interview, you know, we're like the town horror that's become respectable <laughs> and yeah. that that's that is something that happened through the years it and, uh, happens it's it's been really fun to watch and it just keeps going too i mean it's really gotten big again in in a weird sort of way that that now uh, dead and company can charge uh, fairly well prices <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> uh, but they're a great band and i've enjoyed all the bands all along i was never one of those people who said oh you know it's too soon after jerry's death i don't you know, think i can hear any grateful dead music I, I like immediately wanted to hear grateful dead music and uh, as I think I said in the in the biography, the Missing Man formation with
1: Vince Wellnick, yeah, uh,
3: Vince's uh, band was the first one that really kind of hooked me in the post Jerry issue. I thought, yeah, these guys are playing Grateful Dead music in really interesting ways. I I, I want to hear more of this. And then Phil obviously is has been the the avatar for basically the whole post Dead period. Yeah,
1: Phil definitely gave the scene permission to do new and interesting things with the repertoire with this amazing revolving cast of musicians.
3: Exactly. I mean, and and to take any song and and rip it apart and and then pull it back together and go out for 25 minutes on some song you never expected them to go out on. And and exactly like you said, opening up the repertoire so that suddenly people are, are playing uh, The Golden Road or Rosemary. I mean, here's a song I never thought I'd see live and I've seen it like
1: three times. Now. <laughs> right. Or Pride of Cucamonga.
3: <laughs> yeah. Pride of Cucamonga. I mean, it's, it's it's so amazing what Phil did. And I think Phil was the one who really influenced Bobby to loosen up a little bit on Rat Dog and all that kind of stuff. And they became a great band, too, I think.
1: Yeah, Bobby didn't seem like he wanted to get anywhere near the repertoire at first. Yeah. But I'm really glad that he re-embraced it because he's doing great things.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think about young people today, though. They'll never have the experience of seeing the Jerry Garcia Grateful Dead and we just get further and further away from that period. So, what do you think about the future of Grateful Dead appreciation? Where does it go from here?
3: I think we're living the future of Dead appreciation. I think it's you know it's J Rad who I yeah. think are fantastic and also have opened up the catalog in in very interesting, unusual, and fun ways. Yeah, I guess Dark Star Orchestra to it. I think are pretty good. I'm not really a fan, per se. Something a little too faithful for my taste.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're not trying to create a new vernacular.
3: What they do, they do really well. It's sort of not what I want to see that much, though.
1: Having seen the original, you've seen a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And Dead and
3: Company, you know, I think are fun. I loved uh, the last Mickey Hart Band, which had two different incarnations. You know, when I go see, like, Melvin play, whatever incarnation of the JGB he's he's with yeah uh rest in peace gloria we have to say that indeed they really sound like the Garcia band to me. And I, every time I see them, I think, wow, Nolvin really was so much a part of that sound because here they are without Jerry and it really does sound just like them. And there's, great. there's so many guitar players now who are really, really good and well versed in Jerry isms, but also take it to other places. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, you know, when Further was around and there was this big controversy over John Kadlasik because he had been in Dark Star Orchestra and he was the Jerry, the Jerry clone, J clone, as some people called him.
1: Hashtag fake Jerry.
3: Yeah, right, right. And I, I, I liked him immediately. I thought, man, this guy can really play Jerry well. And in a lot of ways, he was a lot more consistent than the way Jerry was, like from 93 to 95. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right. he hits the high points that you want to hear in the song. And he does have some of his own personality.
1: Um, yeah, I, I really ended up coming around to Steve Kimmock.
3: Yeah, I love Kim Ock.
1: I mean, he's definitely got the Garcia handbook, but he can also speak a bunch of different languages, namely jazz fusion. You could say the same thing about Jimmy Herring. Like you said, a lot of great players. Or
3: even John Mayer. I think Mayer is really good. And he's, you know, everything he plays has a slightly bluesier edge to it, you know, than, than what Garcia played. But he he's really got serious chops and i i've really enjoyed singing i I also love his singing
1: oh yeah and you know you mentioned the blues bit i love to hear him sing songs like brown-eyed women and bertha because kind of takes it back to that ragtime quality in the music that was always there but he kind of accentuates it differently, which is really exciting, and in some ways is kind of a restoration. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's always nice to hear a good singer tackle those melodies, too.
3: The the vocals have always been the weak spot in most of the Grateful Dead cover bands, I would say. But occasionally a singer comes along and and they kind of nail, not necessarily Garcia, but they nail the song in a a way that I think captures some of the energy of Garcia and these people who want to mess with all the phrasing all the time, Bob Weir. <clears throat> um,
1: well, Bob has less to work with, I think. Don't
3: mess with the phrasing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree.
3: There's the actual quality of Garcia's voice, which was, you know, not traditionally great. But there was something about the way he put a song across. He embodied the song in a way that, that is very difficult to do. So when you find a, somebody who can do that, like the way Mayer does with Althea, the way Chris Robinson does with a whole bunch of different songs. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought Joan Osborne nailed a few of the songs that she sang yep. when she was with The Dead.
1: <laughs> yeah. So who else hits the mark for you?
3: Jackie Green, I think, is a great singer of Garcia songs. Yeah. He does uh, so many roads that's you know more solid than almost any version version that jerry did
1: well it's also a later grateful dead song and i think jerry's voice had changed a lot by then yeah and they also didn't have as long to let that steep yeah at least compared to some of the other stuff in their songbook right
3: right i know that's i mean that's one of the interesting things about that song is that weir has taken it on as something personal and he does a fantastic job on it now so these songs will continue to grow and grow with the people hearing them and the people singing them
1: and that's our episode, folks. Find us online at com. social media, at deadtomeepod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production
2: on the Osiris Podcast Network, recorded in Washington, D.C., with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.